We've got Joel Chernoff here this morning. Um, that's right. When he's played for us before, he's come in on Saturday evening, and uh, last night he had to play a concert at a uh, Messianic synagogue in Dallas, and so he didn't come in until this morning. And that's the reason for the sound check while many of y'all were coming in. But I've asked him to open us up with a song of his choice, and then as we go through the lesson today, he'll sing us a song out of Zechariah, and he'll sing us a song uh, that's got Malachi plus a little extra kick in it that we'll talk about when we get there. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, it's a beautiful day here in Houston again. <laughs> but I've decided not to move here after today. Because <laughs> it isn't perfect here. It has to be perfect if you're going to move. Um, why don't we all stand? Let's loosen up a little bit. You know, in the temple, they used to clap, sing, dance even in the temple. And uh, today, we're going to take a song right out of the book of, of uh, Psalms, which is called, Blessed Be the Lord God of Israel. This is out of the book of Psalms. That was your cue, by the way. <laughs> Put your hands together right there. Give me as much of that as you can. Blessed be the Lord God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. Hey, who alone does wonderful things? Who alone does a wonderful thing? Who alone does a wonderful thing? Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. Blessed be His glorious name. Blessed be His glorious name, His holy name. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. Glorious name, blessed be his glorious name, his holy name. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. Hey, who I known does a wonderful thing? Who I known does a wonderful thing? Who I known does a wonderful thing? The Lord God, the God of Israel. Let the whole earth be filled. Let the whole earth be filled. Hey, the whole earth is filled with His joy. The whole earth is filled with His joy. The whole earth is filled with His love. The Lord God, the God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. Blessed be 
his glorious name. Blessed be his glorious name, his holy name. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. Hey, who I know does wonderful things. Who I know does a wonderful thing. Who I know does a wonderful thing. The Lord God, the God of Israel. Let the whole earth be filled. Let the whole earth be filled. Hey, the whole earth is filled with His love. The whole earth is filled with His joy. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Lord God, the God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. up here and say something useful. I will tell you, when, when that psalm was written, the words, Israel was about the size of Houston Galveston put together. And you consider in this whole earth, that was the size of land that knew Yahweh. That was the size of land that knew Jehovah God. And the psalmist writes, let the whole earth be filled with his glory. But back then, Israel had Yahweh, they worshipped. But if you went right next door, you'd find uh, uh, the, the Philistines worshipping their gods. You would find Edom worshipping their version of Yahweh. You would find the Syrians worshipping Hadad and their gods. You, if you went far enough, you could go up into uh, 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 a Hittite land and find them worshiping their gods. You could come over to uh, uh, America and find the uh, uh, Native Americans worshiping their pantheon of gods. And the idea that out of this one little place of geography, this little Houston-Galveston-sized piece of land, you fast forward 3,000 years... And that God is still being worshipped in the whole earth. I haven't met anybody in my 43 years that worships Hadad, the God of thunder and lightning. <laughs> the whole earth is filled with the glory of the God of Israel. And the psalm was not only profound, but prophetic. Which leads us, prophetic, into a magical land of the minor prophets. Do you realize that today um, we finish the Old Testament in biblical literacy? That's, that's pretty good. Um, I didn't figure it'd take this long, but we have, those of you, who has actually, who was here for Genesis? Wow. Me too. <laughs> um, we are going to finish with Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, why are we studying these three together? Mark Craver's got lessons. If you've forgotten one and need one, hold your hand up. He'll bring it to you. This is service with a smile. Uh, it's not Mark Craver, though. It's, Let's see. So I've got a laser pointer here. It's Danny Way. 
Okay. Um, Danny's got the lessons. Why are we studying these three books together? Well, first of all, they are the last three books chronologically in the way the Old Testament was written time-wise. These are our last three, and they all fit together in a good little niche time-wise. Let's get into the niche. Remember 722 B.C., the northern part of, of Israel, called Israel, fell and was dispersed. In 587 B.C., Babylon conquers Judah and Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's gone. Uh, uh, the Jews are taken into captivity in Babylon. Now, they return in 538 under Cyrus, who authorizes the return. So in 538, the exiles come back. Ezra and Nehemiah are written in this time period. Uh, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah talk about the, not only the return from exile, but the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. In this same time period of Ezra and Nehemiah, You've got these prophets writing their, or giving their oracles at least, that are recorded for us. Haggai, Zechariah, and maybe Malachi. Maybe. Probably. We'll see. Um, let's start with Haggai. Uh, Haggai is a, a fun book. Um, it's uh, talking about the restoration of the temple. And, and uh, the, the Jews were trying to rebuild the temple... We think that the book was written uh, or the prophecies given somewhere in around 520 B.C. They're given over a three-month time period. And these prophecies are pretty interesting. They're really just a collection of oracles. The first oracle out of Haggai is this. You Jews who are rebuilding the temple have your priorities wrong. Now, let's make sure we're in context here. The temple was destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. Absolutely destroyed. This was a temple that had been built under King Solomon, had undergone renovations, um, but at this point in time was absolutely destroyed beyond recognition, torn down, never to be rebuilt again. And so a new temple was going to be built in that area because Yahweh had brought the people back as had been prophesied by uh, Jeremiah, by Isaiah, by Ezekiel, and others. And so God brings the Jews back, and the Jews are charged with the responsibility of rebuilding the temple to worship the Lord. But do you know what they were doing? They were rebuilding themselves first in their own houses and looking out for their own comfort. I mean, God was a high priority. He was number two. It's just they were number one. And Haggai delivers an oracle to the people and says, you have your priorities wrong and God's not blessing it when you do it this way. God's blessing comes when God is first. If you want to put yourself above God, then you can bless yourselves. He's not in the business of blessing you because you've taken over the role of God. And so the priorities are wrong and... Uh, uh, Haggai asks the question, is it time for you to be living in paneled houses? While this, God's house, remains a ruin? You're not just happy living in your homes. You want paneling on the walls before you get around to building God's house, which should be the center for the Jews. It should be our center. Please understand, God has a, a dwelling place on earth. Now, it's not Champion Forest Baptist Church building. It is the church itself and the church are the people. 
And our attention needs to be on building God's house before we are concerned with what our homes look like. Um, in this priority issue, Haggai says, You planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Haggai is saying, you realize that you don't have the fullness and the richness and um, the, uh, I learned this word recently, satiety. What do you think? S-A-T-I-E-T-Y from satiate, satiety. I, I represent the M&M Food Company, the Mars Food Company, and that is an issue with them, satiety. So I have learned about it. It's, they deal with satiety. That's why you can eat more than five M&Ms without getting sick. They want you to be able to eat a gazillion M&Ms without getting sick. So they have to measure your satiety. At what point are you satisfied or satiated? Okay? The people are eating, but they don't have satiety. <laughs> the people are eating, but they're never full. The people are making money, but where'd the money go? They're putting it in a purse with holes in it. Because God says, if you want the blessings of God, you let God be God in your life. Don't you become God and expect the Lord to be blessing you. Make sense? The first oracle. Um, it's interesting, as Haggai says this, he says in two places... Give careful thought to your ways. And this is God speaking to the people here. The oracle is God speaking. Haggai's delivering. He's the microphone. But God is the one who says, Give careful thought to your ways. And that admonition is no less true for us today. Don't put the things of God after the things of man. Put God first. Easy lesson, right? Hard to do. Um, second oracle from Haggai. God is his own glory. Now, let me tell you the problem. The temple's being rebuilt, but the temple of Solomon was a magnificent edifice in terms of our eyes. Okay? It was a magnificent edifice. The temple that's being rebuilt is looking kind of shabby. I mean, the people are doing their best, but they didn't have Al and Mary Nell out there to make sure the rocks went in the right place. And they're not really gifted at doing this. And some of the people are standing around saying, man, our, our temple looks pretty shabby. I don't, I don't think much of this. That may be our perception as we try to build the things of God. We try to get involved in Sunday school class. I don't really have what it takes to be involved at church. I don't really have what it takes to build people up. I tried to build someone up and I stuck my foot in my mouth. And that's an accomplishment because I have a size 12. Of course, I have a big mouth. Um, <laughs> You know, I don't really have what it takes. The building process is not going real well. And God comes in in the second oracle and says, you don't understand. You don't understand. God's behind this. And God can take the most shabby appearance and bring about the greatest blessing. Our God is not concerned with how things look. He's concerned with whether things are devoted to Him. Our God is not concerned with how you look and how well you pull off what you do for Him. He's concerned that your heart's in it. 
and that you're trying because it's then his work. And so God is his own glory. God asks, or Haggai asks the question, does the temple not seem to you like nothing? Doesn't this look like a pretty poor job? Aren't we doing pretty awful? You remember what Solomon's temple looked like, at least what we were told it looked like, and this looks pretty bad? Well, remember, God says, I will fill this house with glory. Pause for a minute. When God uses that word in his oracle, we need to go back in our memory banks and remember where God's glory first came and dwelt, where God tabernacled with his people. As the people came out of Egypt and out of slavery and the, the accoutrements of the tabernacle were built, the glory of God descended there and the glory of God dwelt there. This is the same glory of God that passed Moses and had to put Moses in a cleft of the rock and cover his head because Moses could not see the glory directly but could only see the end of the glory as the glory of God passed in front of him. And even seeing just the tail end of God's glory caused Moses' face to shine so much that the people had to put a veil on him. He was radioactive. That's, we don't know that he was radioactive. But he was glowing. This is the glory that John is going to tell us when we hit the Gospel of John that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the Greek, the word dwelt in John 1.14 is actually the word tabernacled. Periskineo is the, the Greek word there. And it means that it's a hearkening back to the fact that God dwelt in His glory in the tabernacle. God's glory came into Solomon's temple. But... The real glory of God that far exceeds anything that had ever happened was when Jesus Christ himself became flesh and he dwelt among us. That was God's presence. That was God's glory on earth. And that's what was going to come in this temple. Herod gets to kick the temple up a few notches, but as the rebuilding of the temple comes and the prophecy is here in Haggai, I will fill this house with glory. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. In this house, I will grant peace. Indeed, in that house, the Prince of Peace himself came. It may not look like much to you while you're rebuilding it, but you keep building and you wait and see what God does in glory, not only in that temple, but in your lives. You go through a lot of stuff. You put yourself out on the line for where you perceive God wants you. And you wait and see what glory God has to bring to you in your faithfulness. It may not look like much to you today, but you watch. Third and fourth oracles. Obedience before the Lord is the key to holiness. That's the third oracle. The fourth is a personal note to Zerubbabel, the governor of the time, telling him in essence he's God's signet ring and he is the testimony. You have now done Haggai. Zechariah. How are we doing? Okay. We're doing all right. Zechariah is two months after Haggai. See, these, are, these actually have dates in them. They actually tell you when in reference to the people coming back and, and all uh, these, these prophecies were written. Um, these prophecies in Haggai happened over a two-year time span right after um, Haggai. Um, Zechariah, we know, was probably a priest. He was descended from Ido, um, uh, who was a priest. And there are two sections in this book. One section of dated prophecies, the first eight chapters, they tell us when the prophecies were given. 
And then chapters 9 through 14 don't tell us when they were given. We don't really know. But somewhere in this two-year time period, we have Zechariah. Um, we have not had a theological term du jour in some time in this class, and frankly, I thought we were long overdue. So today, we have a moment uh, of uh, commercial break from our deep biblical literacy studies to make ourselves conversant with a word we need to be using. The word is apocalyptic. Say it with me. Apocalyptic. Comes from the Greek word apokalupso, apokalupso, something like that. Apokalupso, that's it. Um, apocalyptic. It means, well, I, I say it means, this is what it is. It's a genre or a kind or a type of literature using symbols, frequently dreams and visions, to convey a message that often involves the end times. Let's break that apart for a minute. It's a genre of literature. What do I mean? You're, a, a kind of writing, like science fiction is for us, a genre of liter literature, or historical fiction is a genre, or the biography is a kind of literature. It's a kind of writing. There was a kind of writing that we call now, they didn't call it this, we call it apocalyptic. And typically it had symbols. Um, it'd have horsemen, the, the horsemen of the apocalypse. It would have uh, 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 lampstands. The numbers were, were symbolic frequently in, in many different ways. And this was a kind of literature that we had some in Daniel that was really starting its popularity then. The popularity increases in between the Old and New Testament. By the time the New Testament comes along, there's a lot of material out there that's apocalyptic that we can read. And the revelation of St. John is an apocalyptic piece in the New Testament. Well... Why do I give us that term today? Because Zechariah's visions, many of them, fall into that kind of category. And if you read them, you've got to understand what some of the symbolism is. Or you've got to try and understand what some of the symbolism is. You may not always get it. That's okay. You can still get the message and the understanding. I don't have all of the book of Revelation figured out. But I can tell you, we win in the end. Because that message is pretty loud and clear. Okay? And it ain't always going to be fun getting to the end. That message is in there too. So you may not get all of the details. They may be lost and, and uh, tough for us to figure out. But if you look at Zechariah chapter 1, you've got four horsemen teaching that there's going to be a divine restoration of Israel. In chapter 1, you've got a second vision of four horns and four craftsmen involved in how Israel gets rebuilt. You've got a man with a measuring line as another vision in chapter 2. You've got Israel being cleansed and restored in chapter 3. And let's pause for a minute and look a little bit closer at this vision because it's interesting. This vision has Satan and the high priest of Israel standing before God. And Satan is accusing the high priest of Israel. He's pointing his finger at him before God and he's saying, look at this man, he's wearing filthy clothes. He's polluted. He has no right to be a high priest. He has no right to come before you, God. You cannot, you holy God, can't let a man with such filthy, polluted clothes come in front of you. I stand in accusation. This man should be cast out of heaven. And what God does is God says to one of his angels, Hey, go take off the high priest's filthy clothes. 
and put clean, pure clothes on him. And then the man is cleaned and God says, I have taken away your sins and I will put rich garments on you. And the accusations of Satan, sinner, filthy, dirty person, are washed away in the cleanliness of God. Not because the high priest earned it, not because the high priest was faithful, but because God provided righteousness for that priest through the appearance of clean clothes. This is the same image that Paul's going to use in Galatians where Paul's going to talk about how we are all dead in sin and we are all dead before God. And yet because of the righteousness through faith, we have the cleanliness of Christ. And in Galatians he'll say, when you were baptized into Christ, you put on Christ. And the put on language is like putting on clothes. It's the same Greek word. Because now we have Christ. We are clothed in Christ. And so you don't see me up here. You see my coat and my shirt and my breeches. God and Satan and the world, when they look at us and we're in Christ, they don't see the filthy clothes. God doesn't. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. And it's what he put on you. And it's what he gives you. And it's a beautiful oracle about how God will cleanse. Um, there's a gold lampstand. And Zacharias having trouble understanding the vision of the gold lampstand, and frankly, I do too. And uh, Zechariah is encouraged, if he's having trouble understanding, not to worry. Understanding comes not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, said the Lord. Um, it's a song many of you probably know because they're great. It's a, it's a great uh, phrase, and uh, that's where it came from. So biblical literacy, we need to do that. Um, chapter 5, it's a great uh, uh, vision. It's a flying scroll that's flying all over the place. And it's a curse for deceivers and liars, indicating that they're not appropriate to be stable. They ought to be sent to Babylon or whatever. Deception's wrong before God. Lying is wrong before God. And the scroll's out there flying. Now, here's the catch. If you're reading about it in your NIV, you're going to see that this scroll is 30 feet by 15 feet. We're going to say, well, that's interesting. I'm glad to get those details. That doesn't help us any. The problem is it wasn't written in feet. The NIV folks were nice enough to translate it into feet, but it was written in cubits. And a cubit uh, was a measurement roughly from the elbow to the hand. Of course, depending on what size you are, it makes a difference in the cubit. So we don't quite know what the building cubit size was, but we're guessing around 18 inches or so. And so it's translated into 30 by 15 feet. In reality, what the Hebrew says is it's 20 by 10 cubits. And the number 20 and the number 10 are very symbolic numbers in apocalyptic literature. They stand for something that is full or something that's complete. You have 10 fingers. You have 10 toes. If you count your fingers and your toes, you've got 20. You've got them all. You don't want to walk around with nine fingers, you'll be one short. Your preference is to have ten. You don't want to walk around with nine toes, you'd be one short. Your preference is to have ten. Ten fingers, ten toes, ten is a full number. Twenty is a full number. So when that figure is used in the Hebrew on the size of the scroll, what is being delivered there is a message that says this scroll 
of judgment is as full and complete as it needs to be. It's as big as it needs to be. Don't think you escape from it. God pays attention to everyone. Nobody gets under his radar screen. Are you watching The Apprentice? You know, the Donald Trump thing? Y'all aren't watching that? Okay, a couple people have been flying under the radar screen. See, they're going to get cut. They will get fired. It's going to be Troy and Amy at the end fighting it out. Um, Chapter 5 has a wicked woman in a covered basket. Chapter 6, four horse-drawn carriages. We've got some historical data in chapter 6. We've got some talk about fasting in chapter 7 and 8. And then we get to the purifying judgments and blessings at the end of Zechariah. And what Zechariah says is this is the way God works. God's going to refine you. Purify you like silver is refined and purified. How is silver refined and purified? You melt it. You ever felt melted? Okay, it's not the most likable thing in the world, but that's the way God's going to refine His people. Joel's put this passage to to music. I want Joel to sing it instead of me uh, say it. So I'm going to sit down and and listen to it and listen to how God works in your heart and your life. Amen. This is the song Becky was talking about, I think. The, um, wrote this song back in, back in the early 70s at a time when, when, um, excuse me, when um, God was pouring out His Spirit upon the Jewish people. He was doing this. And He still is. Uh, back in the late 60s, there were fewer than 2,000 Jewish, uh, Jewish people believing in this country believing in the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. And today there are hundreds of thousands, if not more than that. We aren't, we, we aren't even sure. But this process has started, the refining process. Israel is going through that process. Do you believe that? Do you see that every day in the papers? All of that is about the refining process. And I actually wrote this in 73, <clears throat> 73, 74, at the age of six, I was, um, and I had, um, <clears throat> at that time I could float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, vocally. But anyway, uh, this song fits the lesson, so doggone, I'm going to do it. So, you just pray with me, I'm going to go for the high notes today. I will refine thee as refining silver. I will test you as testing of gold, and they shall call upon my name. And I will answer for then I will say This is my people And they in return shall say The Lord is my 
clearly need to find some higher songs for him to sing. He was bluffing us on that voice thing. Okay, new subject. Malachi. Last book in the Old Testament. Right before Matthew in the New Testament. Um, uh, Malachi is interesting because there is a split in opinion in whether or not Malachi was a fellow who had this prophecy or Malachi is merely a convention because uh, Malachi in Hebrew literally means my messenger. And so it may mean that this fellow named Malachi, who was God's messenger, was aptly named and he had these prophetic uh, uh, visions and oracles and, and word from the Lord. Or it could be that uh, uh, an unnamed prophet who was God's messenger took these messages to the people on behalf of God. Uh, if you look at your whole old Hebrew transcripts, they tend to treat Malachi like a person 
If you look at the translations the Jews did in Alexandria, Egypt into the Septuagint and the Greek language, um, uh, they treat Malachi not as the name of the author, but rather his office as God's messenger. And uh, so there's a split of opinion. Either way, it's the word of the Lord. And so we've got it. Written around 450 B.C., um, there are six very clear oracles in this book. The first one is God's clear love for Israel. God says, let's make no mistake about it. I have a love for the people of Israel. It's unmistakable. It's clear. It's unending. It is a promise I have given to Abraham and his lineage, and that love will not ever die out. The second oracle is one that denounces the priests because they were giving second-rate sacrifices. When you sacrifice to the Lord, you are supposed to bring your best sheep or your best dove or the best of whatever you had. And the people were not doing that. Instead, the people were saving the best for themselves and bringing the Lord the second best. And um, this doesn't fly with God. This is not right. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, I remember asking mom and dad, you know, why do I have to dress up to go to church on Sunday? And back then it was a, a, an era and a time where the response was because you want to wear your best and give God your best. We live in an age now where you know, this, this, this is the best I got. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, we live in an age now where, where it, you, you always want to bring your best heart to God. But even still, the way we dress, though it's, um, it's not a casual that, that is um, trashy. You still want to show God your best. But the dress is minor compared to the rest of the things we offer the Lord. And we're to offer God the best of what we have. The best of our time, the best of our tithe, the best of our energy the best of our work. I'll challenge you in your job. Figure out a way to tithe part of your job to the Lord. If you're a lawyer, I'd say make sure you take a good portion of your time and donate it with what you do to what God would want you to do. If you are a, a salesperson, um, figure out how somewhere in the midst of what you sell, you can figure out a way to serve and minister not for profit. Um, regardless if you're a teacher, Figure out a way in time to take some of your teaching skills God's given you and uh, uh, minister to those you teach. Um, whatever you may do, God gets the best, not the, the, the second best. The third chapter is mixed marriages and divorce. Um, God's against them. The mixed marriages, it wasn't the idea that a Jew could marry a Gentile. It was the idea that a Jew should not be marrying a pagan Gentile. Uh, if the Gentile was out there and willing to come to faith, then the Gentile becomes a converted Jew. Uh, but, but the Jews were not to marry uh, outside of Yahweh faith, uh, nor are Christians. Um, that, that hadn't changed. Um, the oracles continue. The fourth oracle has God coming in judgment. And I love this line. See, the people were rationalizing their behavior before God. Okay, well, this is sinful, but it's okay uh, uh, because. I think it was Pascal who said, the heart is deceitful above all things. 
you can always figure out some way to justify and rationalize what you're doing. Whether what you're doing is right or wrong, the mind has an incredible ability to do that. I've justified some absolutely atrocious things in my life. And if we're fair, I'll bet you have too. And so God says, you've wearied Yahweh with your words of rationalizing sin and complaining. Yeah, some people are just whining and complaining the whole time. God this, God that, why, why, why? Then you got other people who are just doing whatever they want and rationalizing it away before God. And God just says, you're wearing me out, people. Now, that doesn't sound good to translate it that way, so instead we translate it a little more piously. You have wearied Yahweh. But what he's saying is, you are wearing me out. And uh, now I've got teenage daughters. I understand this. <laughs> they can rationalize anything. I mean, they've got the complaining down. One of my teenage daughters, I won't mention Gracie by name, is not supposed to be on her cell phone after 10 o'clock at night. Not supposed to be on any phone after 10 o'clock at night. But you're going to be shocked to find out we've found her on her cell phone after 10 <laughs> o'clock at night. And our initial reaction was, Gracie, this is a rule. And her initial reaction is, oh yes, but you don't understand. And she gives this long, elaborate explanation of why the rule is absolutely irrelevant at that time and place in history. <laughs> and we have to, again, go through the process of... And we, we've got it down to an art now. Instead of now, Gracie, this is wrong, now it's, Gracie, would you take a moment and explain to me what's more important than obeying your father? <laughs> now, I'm a lawyer, man. I've got... <laughs> I can cross-examine... <laughs> Generally, I don't put her under oath. Occasionally, we have to. Um, but I can't help, every time I do it, I can't help but think, you know, she's wearing me out. I don't know. We got five of these things, and this is just... I mean, do you all realize I live at home with five women? My son, he went to New York. Um, anyway, uh, God, God beat me to the punch. He was first, you're wearing me out with your rationalizing and your complaining. Fifth, um, there were some social and economic issues. The people were having trouble making ends meet. And this is one of those places where God comes in with a zany, godly answer and says, you're ignoring your tithe. You're not tithing to the Lord. You want to know why you don't have enough money? You're not giving enough money to God. I got an email from someone in class the other day who said, man, my money's just getting really tight and I was starting to think, how am I going to make ends meet? Um, some unexpected economic things have happened in my life and uh, I think I need to cut my tithe back now and wait till I get on better footing before I start tithing. This person was gracious enough to share it with me in an email. He said, I know you're teaching on Malachi. He said, uh, I decided I wasn't going to do that, and I wrote my check anyway, but then figured I sure better balance my checkbook because I don't know how rubber this check might get one day. And, 
And, and he said, you know, when I balanced my checkbook, I had made a mistake a couple months ago that I'd never realized. And I had money in there. And, and he said, it's not that, gee, God would have taken that money away if I hadn't done the tithe, but it was just really nice and confirming that God's going to take care of me. And he said, feel free to share it with the class. I thought, great. Great illustration. Here's the way Malachi asks, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. You ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. God says, first 10% is mine. Yeah, you want to rob God? You can. You can say, no, God, it's mine. And I can do this a whole lot easier than, than DeMond can because whenever a preacher does it, you always sit back there and think, yeah, 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 you got the budget and this is your... Uh, uh, I, I think that. Maybe you don't. Um, but I, I don't get a dime out of this. Man, you do your tithe, you don't do your tithe. It doesn't make a lick of difference to me. I'm living my life. I'm just here to tell you that uh, um, uh, I did not tithe well for a number of years in my life. And uh, it's still a struggle. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It is a struggle to tithe. I mean, at some point you think, well, the Lord's got enough. Doesn't he own all the cattle on the hill? It's what the Psalms say. Um, but I, I'm here to tell you, I was not good at tithing, and, and it was a struggle to make ends meet. Um, I, I was at a dinner one night with some other Christian friends, and, and one of the guys said, do you remember how great it was when we were too poor to have credit cards? I said, what do you mean? He said, we weren't in debt. Then we started making enough money, they'd give us credit cards, and now we're broke because we owe our lives away. I thought, Walter, that's perceptive. But I can remember making a conscientious decision, okay, I'm going to figure out how to start tithing before the Lord. I remember where I was, and I remember making the decision. And I'm just here to tell you, that is when my business life turned around. It absolutely did. I mean, I mean, I mean it's like a, a clear corner was turned right then and there. And uh, God is uh, God is God, and this is what He says. And so we need to quit robbing Him. Now, next. Some people are complaining in Malachi. It's, it gets a bit philosophical here. And they say, why should we obey? You know, we've been busting our guts to obey the Lord. And we've been watching. And there are some evil, wicked people who don't give a rip about God, and they're prospering. And our lives are pretty tough right now. Why are the wicked prospering when the righteous are getting trashed? Interesting question. Malachi gives a good answer. I have loosely translated it by myself into a little more colloquial English. Here's the way it reads in the NIV. Why, what did we gain by carrying out his requirements? And then my translation. It ain't over till it's over. That's what God says. It ain't over till it's over. You may feel right now like the unrighteous are prospering and the righteous are getting trashed. And what is the point in you obeying what you hear God calling you to do? It doesn't get you where you're supposed to be going. But God says, don't worry. 
You just keep walking the road and you see in the end, because in the end, the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. But you who revere my name, the son of righteousness, will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Two things. When you read the son of righteousness, the English in your brain is going to take son and, trans and do it S-O-N because we think of Jesus. And I'm not so sure that God didn't have these puns in mind when he put all this stuff together. But the vision here is the sun that rises from the, sky, from the, the horizon. The sun of righteousness with the bright light that nothing can hide from. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings as it comes out. And the, the same sunlight will bring healing to you. Joel has a song off of this, but Joel has done us a favor. We're going to spend two weeks on the Apocrypha before we get back into the Bible, the Protestant Bible. But when we get back in, we go to Matthew because this is the bridge. And so Joel's put a bridge song together that combines that passage from Malachi, for all of you who love and revere my name, will the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, will all go forth and leap for joy like a newborn calf from his stall. Hallelujah. And combines it with a passage that really answers the complaining in good New Testament Jesus speak of the people. The passage out of Matthew. Come to me, all who, you who labor and are heavily laden. Take my yoke. Learn of me. I'm gentle light. You'll hear it. Here are your points for home because when Joel's done, I want you to be able to go from here. Put God first in your life. Behold His glory. Let Jesus shine. Shine, Jesus, shine upon us. Behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And know that God clothes us with Jesus' righteousness. The reason we want to be holy and the reason we want to do right before God is not to win His love. His love is unending. It's because He wants to bless us. And we can't be blessed when we walk in wickedness. He's given us righteousness. He's taken us home when we die. God cleanses us even if it hurts. And the end is worth the journey. So with that, Joel will sing us. And after his song, which is a prayer in itself from God to us and us to God, that's our closing prayer and you'll be released. Amen. Very good. Excellent. Come to me, you who labor. This is a well-oiled machine. Take my 
my yoke and learn of me. I am gentle and oh so My yoke is easy, my food is light. Peace for you souls that you find. From the fountain that will never run dry Rest your soul in its sweet overflow And for all of you who love and revere my name To the sun of righteousness Arise with healing in his peace And we will God bless you.